0: You are tuning into Latino Politics and News with Tony Diaz on 90.1 FM KPFT, Houston, Texas. The era of Hispandering is over. Thank you for tuning in to Latino Politics and News. This is Tony Diaz. Today we have a one-hour special on the profound impact that the activists, intelligentsia, and comunidad that Arizona has had on Texas and, of course, the Latino vote. Right now, of course, there is a lot of clickbait trying to examine the Latino vote. I suspect that will evaporate in a few weeks and we will be left to our own devices again. As as an an activist, I'm going to tell you, we have to keep working hard. We have to keep our eye on the prize. And we have to believe in community cultural capital. On that note, I'm so proud to be one of the co-founders of the Libra who joined a movement across the Southwest and then a national movement to unite with our brothers and sisters in Tucson when Arizona right-wing legislatures banned Mexican-American studies. I say all that because the imprint is profound. That played a role in the evolution of ethnic studies in Texas, Additionally, without a doubt, that also has left a lasting impression that has led to Arizona turning blue. Of course, this is just the tip of the pyramid. Community cultural capital is at the base. This is just one show in our legacy of shows talking about this issue. And I bring it up in contrast to the one-shot stories, the three-minute segments on all other media trying to break down what our community looks and thinks like without asking us. We're going to get to the heart of the matter today by talking to Dr. Nolan Cabrera. This is a two-part interview. We're going to touch bases with him because he is the intellectual who led the team to devise the bulletproof evidence that Mexican American studies was beneficial to students. And he had to do it right because the only hired guns that the right-wing Arizona legislatures hired that were trying to bring down the evidence during the Arizona Supreme Court hearings, the only hired gun was out to sink that ship of evidence, and they could not. We're going to talk to Nolan Cabrera about that era, that legacy, part one of the show. Part two of the show, we're still going to talk to Dr. Nolan Cabrera as he's moved on to this next topic. Not that he's left all those other issues behind. We as intellectual and community and artists, we keep moving and growing. We cannot wait for mainstream media to catch up because they have not. You've heard about that on other shows that we broadcast as well. So if you don't know about that, Google us. Listen to our last 30 shows and you'll catch up. Having said that, right now Dr. Nolan Cabrera is writing about how white fragility is part of the backlash against ethnic studies that has been required in California public universities for graduation. Great news that that's there. Bad news is that the same thoughts that have tried to ban Mexican American studies in Arizona are now pushing back on this great curriculum that is in California. We're going to talk to him about What that means, the implications of that, and how we can help them. Hey, this is what you expect from our radio show, Latino Politics and News, which is part of the legacy of Nuestra Palabra, Latino Writers Having Their Say, and kpft.org. If you can, please go online to kpft.org, please donate, make a check to KPFT, say that you're supporting Latino Politics and News, and our sister show, Nuestra Palabra, Latino Writers Having Their Say. I have to thank some of the community members that have really helped us throughout all this period. Can't thank them all. It would take us years to thank them all, and we do on a daily basis. Right now, I want to thank Rodrigo Bravo for mixing our shows remotely really great at it and you know he's an artist because he puts so much love and attention into every syllable we utter additionally roxana guzman helps us with our communications and she puts a lot of love and attention into getting the word out about our words we appreciate her working on communications if you like the music letty lopez is out there pulling the strings making sure that we live up to giving you the soundtrack to a revolution hey this is tony diaz it is on to Latino politics and news. This is Tony Diaz. We are focusing on the legacy of the Mexican American Studies movement that started in Tucson, Arizona. And we have on the phone with us one of the intellectual giants from the community who helped overturn that racist American law. And we're going to talk to him for two segments One about the legacy of the Mexican-American studies movement in Tucson, Arizona. And we're also going to talk about what is the fallout after California has implemented a requirement for ethnic studies in public universities. Of course, let's focus on our amigo, Dr. Nolan Cabrera. Un saludo y un abrazo, mano. Great to talk to you.
1: Thanks so much for having me, man. It's been too long, but we're just picking it up like we haven't left each other ever, man. It's nice. <laughs> no, <of course.
0: laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I really think fondly of those days, even though it was the epitome of American oppression, <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and, and anytime I talk anywhere, I'm like, yeah. before we begin, I want to remind all of you that in our lifetime, Arizona banned mixed American studies because then the flip side of that is our community in Tucson taught all of us how to stand up, how to be forthright, and how to win. So, first of all, you know, that was really an important moment in American history. I just want to congratulate you and todas las camaradas out there who had it going. Do, do you still think about those days often?
1: Every day, like constantly. Um, it's it, it's it's one of those that this is I mean, the, the, the final ruling, uh, like the, the judge case closed was in January of 2018. This was not ancient history. This is right here, right now. And, you know, and, and then seeing the ripple effects throughout the country, as so many people have drawn strength from the struggle in Arizona, um, it's just, it's, it's kind of incredible to see and, and see the next generation of, of Cape Pole Ethics studies being developed and implemented and people struggling with it, just as a lot of folks here did, but, but just there's a certain energy behind it that's, that's absolutely beautiful.
0: And, of course, because, uh, you know, I'm taking for granted that the whole world knows you, I do want to pause <laughs> in, in my in my happiness and remind Please. folks that you are Dr. Nolan Cabrera. You're at the University of Arizona at the Center for the Study for um, Higher Education. And I will always remember you as the Barrio Scholar who came up with the bulletproof evidence that, Mexican-American studies was changing the lives of students, uh, crushing the the educational divide. It was working, and your evidence was there on court. And I remember, if I remember this correctly, of course some of it may be legend now, uh, (laughs) the one expert that the Arizona far-right administration hired was supposed to come and shoot holes in your evidence, and I remember sitting in that sweaty because it gets hot in Tucson courtroom, <laughs> and he could not. Am I am I am I remembering this correctly?
1: Yeah, yeah. Right. He he uh, um, he basically he made a lot of insinuations that basically the results were too good. There's no way that they came out this good. Um, uh, and that's not that's not a statistical <laughs> argument. That's he even he, he even made the argument on this, in his in his deposition that you know if the if these numbers are correct, this would be one of the most profound and important uh, educational innovations in the last half century that could positively affect the lives of millions of students. Well, <laughs> no, right, right after that, he said, "But I don't believe these statistics." But he still said he wow. still said that that, that that yeah i mean that was that was the basis of his argument the, the num the numbers are too good i'm'm I'm, I'm sorry you know Chicanos and tucson you performed too well academically <laughs> yeah. so that was yeah and, that was, and he was the only one he was the only one they hired.
0: Jeez, of course, I think he was plagiarizing the script from Stand and Deliver*, where Edward James Hollows you know, teaches all the kids calculus.
1: It's like, yeah.
0: did he not see the film? Like, we're living
1: in <laughs> it. Pretty much. He's like, there's a conspiracy. Who's at the head of the conspiracy? Is it Sean Archer and Jose Gonzalez?
0: <laughs> well, and, and you, you, to me, too, that gets at the heart of this because I, I really see that the scholars and the community and you know all these wonderful teachers you mentioned Sean uh, Arce, Curtis Acosta uh, you know um, you got so many others but they should have been extolled for coming up with the gold standard of ethnic studies and instead they were uh, maligned some sued some dismissed and we had to basically fight for, for basic rights but it was working right Oh, yeah, no, there's no
1: question about it. And one of the things that really struck folks with the um, uh, with the results of my statistical analysis were students who um, uh, students were more likely, after initial failure, to pass their AIMS, which is an Arizona State uh, standardized test. They were more likely to pass the math courses, or the math, math, uh, standardized tests, I'm sorry. And what was weird about that was that usually, you know, like, okay, my writing score goes up because I'm taking a class in writing. My social, st- you know, my, my whatever score goes up because you're re- working that competency. There wasn't a Chicano Studies math course. And so <laughs> there just wasn't. And so that starts to give an indication that these classes weren't just providing content knowledge, but they were actually fundamentally changing the students' relationship. To their educational experience. They were changing their relationship to school. They were changing their relationships in profound and meaningful ways as these students started seeing meaning and purpose behind what it is that they were doing. And you're right, they, 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 these people, you know, Sally West, Marlon Gonzalez, Carlos Acosta, I even mean, the list of, you know, Rene Martinez, the whole crew, they had, and, and I know this is going to be controversial, but Aguirre Omaro as well. I know there's some riffs and tensions there, but the whole crew. Created gold standard ethnic studies in Arizona. And instead of being, you know, getting a pat on the back, it became that incredible threat, threat of a good example. Like they were it, it, the, the, the lives that were just thrown around haphazardly for political opportunism and just overt racism. It's just, it's, it, it's beyond contempt. It's, it's just so horrible because this was just, it was a cute little. You know, uh, midterm election ploy that just hurts so many people in the process as Tom Hart was trying to become the the governor of the state of Arizona.
0: And, and again, we're not conjecturing; we're not citing conspiracy theory. In the final ruling, the you know the courts said that the ban of Ethnic studies in Arizona was implemented with discriminatory intent. Additionally, so that some political players can gain power, we are going to talk a little more about the the um, reach of the movement because that then sparked the fight for ethnic studies in Texas and Arizona. Mm-hmm. We are going to talk about how California has just passed a requirement for um, public colleges in California requirement to take ethnic studies. But I think the the other part too is let's name some of these figures because the the far right politician who signed not just the show me your papers law, also signed the um, ban on ethnic studies was Jan Brewer and she was the epitome of that whole era where vilifying (laughs) us was a way to gain power
1: and to stay yep. in power. Yep. No, you're 100% correct. And I think like she, because remember, she wasn't, she wasn't elected her first time around. She got the job because Janet Napolitano went to serve in the Obama administration. And so she was really concerned about a reelection. And, you know, this is it's a traditional right wing tactic, you know, feed red meat to your base um, you know, during midterm elections. So, you know, back in, uh, was it two thousand six? You had the HR four four three seven, the simpson and Brenner bill. It's basically to "Show me your papers" on a national level. Um, you had you know people trying to outlaw gay marriage, and in subsequent every two year cycle, and this was it. You know, you had you had uh, Jan Brewer signing uh, signing uh, SB ten seventy, the rabidly draconian anti immigrant law, in into play, um, the banning of Mexican American studies, which was Tom Horn's big thing. Oh, and... Remember, this was the third time he tried to pass this law. You know, the first time it was under a Department of Homeland Security bill, and that's how they're framing Mexican American studies as that badly anti-American. Wow. wow! And then on top, and on top of that, there was an anti affirmative action piece on the ballot as well. But all of it was to try to drive up right wing, um, uh, right wing voters in, uh, in the in the state, and then that was supported then by by then um, state legislator John Huthenthal. And then it was this weird kind of musical chairs, because once all that happened, Brewer got elected, Tom Horn became Attorney General, moving from State Superintendent of Public Instruction, and then John Hoopinthal moved up to to, to State Superintendent of Public Instruction, even after he ran, and this, this is this is verbatim, like your, your listeners are not going to believe this, but it's true, it's a quote, he ran on a platform that, if elected, I will stop La Raza. Mm. Like that's loan data. He said that. He's never denied it. I've heard it multiple times. I listened to it as a radio spot. Even in Texas, that might be a disqualifying feature of right? you're running for a statewide office. But in Arizona it got you elected. That's how weird things were in the early two thousand tens in my state. Man.
0: That's heavy duty. And and I do want to stress then in two thousand twelve that racist un American law banning mixed American studies was enforced and Mm -hmm. what's fascinating is i want to dwell on just the pain that that caused because of course now that joe biden is president-elect um we are and does the texas les tiramos flores we are celebrating that arizona has turned democrat but i want to i want to pause for a second and point out that I'm not crazy about that metaphor of flipping a state or turning Texas blue because it sounds like there's a light switch somewhere and you flip it. There was a lot of pain, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, but you had the activism of the immigrant rights folks and the activism of the mixed American studies folks that that all came together. But you're telling us how ugly it was before this got on the national spotlight
1: absolutely and, and just people's lives devastated um as a result of it and you just i mean, you can just you can you can talk to anybody who's had to experience people who've had their families separated because of the the draconian immigrant uh anti-immigrant laws the the students who were taking mexican american studies and had it stripped away from them or even had it directly removed from their classrooms in front of their eyes and just the the, the, the pain and the suffering that's associated with all of that is just is, is absolutely intense. And one of the things that that kind of got me through that a little bit was it. it so it kind of coincided with the twentieth anniversary of that horrible law in California, um, uh, Proposition 187, mm. which was again another rabid anti-immigrant law that Pete Wilson, the governor then, was trying to ride to the presidency of the United States. And you know, on the twentieth anniversary a whole group of Mexican-American who were not professionals, but they were activists at the time, they had sort of a sarcastic um, uh, 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 social media movement where they would hold signs, you know, now I'm a, you know, thank you for radicalizing me, and now I'm, you know, now I'm an attorney. And, that, and so, like, in the community and holding it down, you had all these brown faces. And in many respects, that's what you're having right now is that, it's it, you know it's not a big joke that you know that you know they, they tried to bury us, but they forgot we were seeds mm-hmm. those seeds are coming up again you know they, 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 their their plan did not work um and thankfully all those folks were um uh, were in uh, let's be honest also Joe Arpaio, uh, uh oh man uh, <laughs> John, yeah John who Tom Tom. They're all. None of them are an elected official or elected officials anymore. And you know, but again, like you said, we have to give credit where credit's due. People think about that. That's just sort of a natural arc of history. And and I really I really take issue with this sort of misinterpretation of Dr. King's famous words about you know the moral arc of history is long, but it always bends towards justice. The people on the grassroots, like Lucha, bent it. Towards justice. It was proactive people who were doing that work that made it move towards justice. It doesn't just naturally occur. That's deep.
0: And and I think we really have to make that clear as both political parties proceed. The other, the other thing our community has to understand is the rich depths of community cultural capital that was present in Tucson. Because mm-hmm. um, first, let's talk about the writers. You had all these wonderful writers that have created these texts: Sandra Cisneros, Dagoberto uh, you know Roberto Rodriguez. Go on and on and on. So we had that. We had all these wonderful instructors that not only created the curriculum but had the foresight to create the administrative component, to create the center, and it was very focused and organized. You had all these students coming through that were, um, you know, bright, that were getting fired up. And then, of course, then we had a whole generation of scholars. Le Vamos Tirar Flores, Dr. Valenzuela, whose work was part of the – the evidence to overturn the band and then and then your evidence too, so tell us a little about your your trajectory to that moment because you had to have a lot of discipline to wait to write the research because you knew it was going to get shot at um, and and the numbers were staggering and amazing and almost unbelievable so what did you do to prepare for for that sort of criticism, and what are some those some more of those wonderful figures you? Uh, archived
1: yeah um, well, actually to, to add a layer of complexity to the story the original uh, analyses weren't even done in relation to the program itself mm. Tucson is, is under a 40 year desegregation uh, a federal desegregation program and as a result of that the, the special master and I hate that it's such an antiquated term, but the, the federal it, it is. It's like it it, is. I mean you, you, you think of all the imagery but that uh, uh you know, But so he he realized that he couldn't completely um uh integrate the schools because of school choice and all, and and vouchers and all these different things that, that um, which, I mean, they, some folks say they're not effective. I say they're extremely effective at doing one thing, and that's segregating public schools. Um, and they, uh, but he said that we don't have to necessarily accept these persistent levels of, of uh, academic uh, inequities, in, uh, inequitable uh, structural opportunity across the district. And so he, through a federal order, He told the district to open up the data because they didn't want to be, they didn't want to do it It was too much of a political hot potato. But when they did, they said, who can do these data? And I I had already run a bunch of sort of descriptive statistics just saying, you know, what percentage of students, you know, graduate, who take next and instead. It was just really basic things like that. So I had more than a gray familiarity, but I also had the uh, statistical familiarity with it. And And so that report, the special master Harvard became the very first, uh, the first iteration, and just kept amping up and amping up. And what was really interesting as we dive deeper into the data is that because everyone says, "Well, of course these students are doing well." Maybe it was because they, you know, they handpicked. You know, even in of communities, you still have some really, really, really bright students. Like that's we, we said, there's no talent in these areas. BS. There's plenty of talent in these areas. You know, I, 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 the, 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 the racist nonsense that I had to put up with in terms of interpreting the data was ridiculous, but here's the big thing. You could take Mexican-American studies in Tucson in either your junior or senior year. So we tracked, what did these students look like in their freshman and sophomore year? Well, in their freshman year, they had somewhere around an average of about a 2.1, 2.2 grade point average, and their sophomore year, it went down even further, mm. and then, you had this intervention junior and senior year, and they graduated levels higher than any other group in the district. Wow. Like, that, that in and of itself, that's part of the reason why the, the state's uh, statisticians said these, these numbers aren't believable. They're not. Like, you like, legit, because where do you see that kind of a turnaround? Like, you can see that turnaround in, like, a class, like you were alluding to earlier, like a, like a high galante like, one dedicated teacher, but on scale. With this many people, it almost never happens like that, and that's what's been so powerful about this about this movement. And it's you know, and I always have to remember that when I'm doing the statistics, it's not like a a number and a beta coefficient. These are the thousands and thousands of hours of of teachers, students, community members, activists, everybody coming together to get that specific result.
0: That's powerful, and of course, you had the. Uh, academic intellectual training to quantify it not just as a scholar but also as an instructor as a community member and then also for, for courts evidence that's beautiful i tell you what now i don't want to forget that you are a leading scholar as well tell us about the books you're working on and uh and tell us about the uh, a little bit about the uh, essays that we'll be talking about in the next segment
1: all right so uh, the big things that i'm working on I, a little while ago i finished my first book which is called white guys on campus so that's a totally different vein well, you yeah, know i, I spent a lot of time interviewing white like, men about what they think about issues of race um and that's kind of been a little germane um in this day and age uh but then the next part that i'm that i'm uh, working on is uh, trying to chronicle the um, so socio political history of the movement to ban Mexican American studies, as well as the resistance to so all the way from local Tucson all the way through to the federal court, um, and really detailing you know how it is that that, that ultimately we did win in in federal court um, and all of the ridiculous racial politics that played into all these different things so. Um, that's, that's one that I'm, I'm writing right now with, uh, co author Bob Chang, who is one of the lawyers on the case and is a, uh, uh, professor at the Seattle University. And so we're trying to knock that one out. And then in the meantime, you know, cause I have so much extra spare time, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, i I uh, uh, wrote a, I wrote a little brief, uh, essay for the conversation about, um, about uh, not just the the critical importance of that um uh the cal state system they were making ethnic studies a graduation requirement but also uh, where's the predictable resistance that's going to come uh against uh against classes that are necessarily really race forward in, in, in their perspective and in their analysis and and it's a weird thing because that Those two, in a way where I have my Mexican-American studies book and my white guys on campus book, and it all kind of came together in this essay where we have ethnic studies and white resistance.
0: Powerful. Well, it has been great to take this walk down memory lane, especially especially as we demand that America embrace the activism of Chicanos and Chicanas across the Southwest and the political implications of the Mexican-American studies movement. Uh, we wish you continued success, and we're going to be coming back to talk to you about this next phase of the movement. It's been great Thank chatting you. with Dr. Nolan Cabrera.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This has been beautiful.
2: Baby, ya yo me interese, no cuando me ve, ay, Sabes que yo te llevaré y dime que quieres beber. Es que tú eres mi bebé. Y de nosotros quién va a hablar si no nos dejamos ver. Yo soy dolcha, veces es dolce, a veces Y cuando te lo quito, después te de lo Y Las copas de vino, las libras de Mari. Tú estás bien suelta, yo de Safari. Tú me ves el culo fenomenal. Pa' yo devorarte como animal. Si no estás venido, yo te voy a esperar. En mi camino lo voy a celebrar. Baby, a ti no me pongo, y siempre te lo pongo, y si tú me tiras, vamos a nadar el hondo. Si por mí te lo pongo, de septiembre hasta agosto, a mí sin no lo que digan tus amigas, ya yo me enteré, se nota cuando. Vieron el Cora, estudiosa puesta para ser doctora. Doctora, Pero pero... le gustan los títeres, hueleando motora. Yo estoy para ti las 24 horas. Baby, a ti no me pongo. Y siempre te lo pongo. pongo. Y si tú me tiras, vamos a nadar de lo hondo. Si por te lo pongo, de septiembre hasta agosto. Y a mis con lo que digan tu amiga, ya yo me entero.
1: This is Dr. Nolan Cabrera, and uh, I wrote a piece called, Although Now Required by California Law, Ethnic Studies Course is Likely to Be Met with Resistance. Uh, it was published in the Conversation, also republished in the Houston Chronicle, among other places. And uh, one component of it is that I wanted to highlight is white right resistance to ethnic studies in general, and in particular uh, race-forward classes, and so I offered, exploring the effects of systemic racism on communities of color can provoke a reaction of what educational scholar and author Robin D'Angelo calls white fragility, or a state in which even a minimum amount of racial stress becomes intolerable, triggering a range of defensive moves. The problem with white fragility is that it frequently emerges within college classrooms when the subject is racism. It can take the form of white student resistance and evasiveness. This resistance has been shown to negatively affect instructor course evaluations, particularly instructors of color. Part of this dynamic is that white men often see these classes that address race and racism as less academically rigorous than other courses.
0: Welcome back to Latino Politics and News. This is Tony Diaz. You're here for a special treat, a one-hour interview with Dr. Nolan Cabrera. We've talked about the legacy of the Mexican American Studies movement in civil rights as well as in the act of turning Arizona into a democratic state. Now we're going to talk about one of the... Outcomes of that movement. Now, we've talked a lot extensively about Mexican American Studies in Texas. That came directly as a result from the movement of Mexican American Studies in Arizona. And right now, we're talking to Nolan Cabrera about pushback against California's recent requirement in public universities for taking an ethnic studies course before graduation. Nolan, Tell us a little bit more about white fragility. So white fragility is, is, as
1: Robin D'Angelo has described it, is a state in which white folks when uh, confronted with the realities of race and racism had a number of defensive moves that really don't allow them to engage race and racism, it becomes a way of sort of separating yourself from it. How dare you say that I'm a racist? How dare you do this? How dare you do that? And uh, it allows them to maintain a sense of non, uh, sort of a non-racist self. Um, they, they take a lot of these issues personally, when in fact we're talking about a systemic reality. And the reason why that systemic reality is so important is that we're all complicit in it. We all have Forgive, forgive the bad pun, but we all have skin in the game in disrupting it as well.
0: And one of the tactics that you mentioned, some folks that are you know uh, immersed in where fragility go to is, is claiming that ethnic studies courses are not as rigorous. I do have to remind our listeners when the Libros were fighting for Mexican American studies at the Tech State Board of Education. I remember, I remember a quote from the Texas State Board of Education representative for District 6, Donna Bohorich. By the way, she did not pursue reelection, and I'm going to be fair here. She did sign at the end, unanimous with all her cohorts. It was across party lines. She did sign to support Mexican-American studies. But early on in that fight, she said that she didn't think that Mexican-American literature was as rigorous as English literature or British literature. And I bring that up because we've seen that. And I don't hear students arguing that, hey, that financial literacy course, you know, hey, is that academically rigorous? So this is a real
1: thing. Of course it is. I, and we had the exact same thing in Tucson, you know, like our former board president in Tucson Unified, Mark Stegeman, was a professor at the, in the Eller College of Business uh, directly, can, it, it, can't we just get back to real education? Oh. With the implication, of course, being that Mexican American studies is not um, real education. And there's so many esoteric things, you know. Like, I mean, how many times have kids been tortured with, like Edith Wharton's work? You know, like, like these. And I, I don't mean to crap on up well, I kind of do. But, 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 but you know, these things that have no relevance to their lives. But are, saying, you know, what are seen as you know. Look at the look at the classics here. It's like what makes it classic. And also, you can have a classic text and a horrible teacher and not have a rigorous classroom. Like you could have people, you know, teaching Hamlet and then doing multiple choice tests, and that would not be a rigorous test, or a rigorous class. It's you know, it, it, a lot of it's about how it's how it's offered and what the people are, are are doing with said course material. There's nothing inherent about uh, a specific curriculum that's going to make it better or worse than the others. It's it's in the implementation. It's like, I have a hammer. Well, that's great. Well, what can you do with said hammer? <laughs> and I think what's
0: great about the essay is that you're preparing a lot of professors, even students, parents, community members, for the... All these ironies in that people run the stereotypes to push back against a course that will help you melt through stereotypes. And they've been trained to think of uh, Chicana, Chicano, African American professors in certain ways to, to question the system when they won't with an Anglo professor. And that seems to be at the crux of some of this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that gets to another concept that I developed. I know this is a bit of a shameless self-plug. Um, <laughs> but, you know, a lot of times folks talk about white right privilege, and inevitably that gives an idea, like a mental image of like a social elevation. And actually, what I've been playing around with is a concept of white immunity. Or a social inoculation that white people receive okay. as a result of systemic racism from the disparate treatment that people of color receive on a regular basis. So exactly that, you may have a whack course, but through white immunity, people aren't going to question it in the way that a lot of faculty of color, especially those who are doing, ethnic studies oriented, race forward analyses are continually said so this is not as rigorous, this is not as uh as 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 important as the other work. They have a, a, an immunity to that kind of uh, of despair treatment. And, and for anyone who wants to think that this kind of uh analysis, these kind of classes are easy, you know, try reading some of the classical theorists like like a Charles, the philosopher Charles Mills on the racial contract. See how far you get into that kind of a text, <laughs> and then come back to me and say that race-based analyses aren't rigorous and difficult and challenging. the the
0: other The other irony that you bring out is that uh, the resistance to this seems to be, well, how dare you force me to take ethnic studies when I think. And I have to giggle at that. I mean, you know, because you know, I've been taking courses about Western white imperialism for for my whole educational life.
1: Yes, absolutely, and, and and that's exactly the point. I actually made that point in the in the article itself that there is simply not the documented evidence, despite the Eurocentric curriculum that a lot of students of color receive, of this same kind of either direct overt resistance or passive aggressive resistance. uh uh, to that Eurocentric curriculum that white students frequently uh offer in response to ethnic studies and race forward uh uh, curricula it's it's really fascinating how that perspective it it really influences how the students are are reacting and it gets back to there's a famous quotation and i've never been able to find attribution for it so if anyone knows please tell me because i would like to give credit where credit is due but it's the whole idea that when when privilege is normal that equity feels like oppression. Mm. And that's a lot of the ways in which the white students are experiencing this right now. It's just normal. This is the way that things should be. I should be at the center. Oh, wait, I'm not at the center anymore? Uh, Something must be wrong. It's not that I have these ill-gotten gains or it was a messed up system to start off with.
0: And we are talking to Dr. Nolan Cabrera about his essay, although now required by California law, Ethnic studies courses likely to be met with resistance, and uh, that was published in the conversation. Of course, I'm, you know, as a practitioner and having seen the ugly side of of pushback, you know, I'm giggling. And some of these are inside jokes. Some people may be listening and not not get the jokes. But there's also there's also this other mean side because some of this resistance is very um, uh, aggressive, right?
1: Mm-hmm. No, right, it totally is, because it's, you know, it's, it's how dare you, and this also gets back to the issue that over the last 30 years or so, we've been treating students in higher education less as students and more as consumers, and so let's say, how dare you give me this when, you know, when what I really need is, I want to be an engineer, I want to be a doctor, what is, what's the relevance of this? And 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 it, it's it's interesting seeing what some people call a backlash and what some folks call a white right lash, um, <laughs> to, to, <laughs> and it, it, uh, it because it's like you don't even see that kind of a response to other components of the general education curriculum. So, for example, English majors inevitably have to take some sort of a math and science requirement, even if they're never going to use it. You know, a lot of students, regardless of whether they're going into the Foreign Service or whatever they do, they have to have some kind of a foreign language requirement. A lot of STEM majors have to have some sort of humanities uh, English writing requirement, and they all grumble about it. When am I ever going to use this? You hear that all the time. But it's only with ethnic studies that it becomes, this is infringing upon my rights, and this is making, you know, how dare you say that, you know, and it, and it does, and, it, and it's one of those things, like, they, it, it's funny because there's almost an inverse relationship between the amount that the folks know about what ethnic studies is... Mm-hmm and their angry response to it. So that like, even even with respect to this, this simple, I mean, it's like a 700-word essay that I wrote, the angrier the people were in their responses, the less able they were to even describe what ethnic studies was. Mm. It, and, and it's one of those things like they always say ignorance is bliss. Well, actually, I'm finding the opposite of that. that their ignorance is leading to a lot of tension and white fragility in the process.
0: And justifies the need for the course. Do we? Do fair break down the specifics of the policy in California?
1: Yeah. So it's the the Cal State system, which is has somewhere in the vicinity of about five hundred thousand students, and it, usually you have like you know Cal State Fresno, San Francisco State. You have up and down all the way around. And they, uh Cal State Fullerton, and they made a requirement that, um, that the students who are going to graduate um, need to have one ethnic studies, have taken at least one ethnic studies course. Now, there's been some controversy around that because uh, that definition was expanded to say a cor- ethnic studies course or course in social justice. And that's been a really tough issue because if you a lot of folks will say that they do social justice social justice has become kind of like a catch-all term that's lost a lot of meaning whereas a lot of the ethnic studies courses people who are teaching the departments of ethnic studies have been maintaining that focus on uh, connections to the community criticizing oppressive structures figuring out what exactly we can do about it they've been maintaining fidelity to that term for a very long time. And the concern is that by adding, well, it could just be anything social justice oriented that you really water down um, the requirement that the students will get. And then it goes a little bit deeper than that too, because the Cal State system, and this is more of context than the policy itself, uh, the Cal State system has been under a lot of pressure to graduate students more quickly, Um, you know, get them out, get them out, get them out. And so prior to this becoming law, Um, a lot of uh, ethnic studies programs were really hurting because students, you know, it was like, okay, just focus on, you know, I'm going to get my political science degree. I don't have time for anything else and just come on out. And so they are really, really hurting in terms of student enrollments. And now all of a sudden they have a a policy that would actually help them. And they're doing the good work that would lead to these larger uh, outcomes of uh, increased uh, cognitive abilities and decreases in racial bias. And all of a the first step is to water it down, which tends to be very typical in these in these processes. So it was a fight to get it to get the uh, um, the bill passed, and now there's another fight on implementation, as there always is. When
0: well, you touched on it right there, but you say in the essay, of course, as I believe myself, is is, is better for for these students, all of them, to take this, but especially now this post George Floyd era, where so many people unless it's lip service, have said that they want to dedicate themselves to dismantling discrimination at every level, um, so that seems to be one of the reasons that this is this is a good policy. What are some other
1: reasons that this should be done? Oh, my goodness. So, it, it, obviously, um, my, my primary concern is always about Um, is always about racial justice. Like, the the esteemed educational scholar Gloria Ladson-Billings talks about the systemic inequities and systemic exclusion from opportunities um, that people of color in general and black students in particular have been experiencing in our educational system for for decades, if, if not centuries. And as a result of that, she argues that we as a society actually owe an educational debt. There's been a debt accrued, and that's where we start from in these conversations. And that, you know, it's sort of what is owed to underserved communities because, you know, you learned it all the way back in slave times that the easiest way to control a a group is to take away their access to education. You take away their books and their reading. The the, the, the lack of self-determination is endemic to the extent that educational inequities are. To the, to the extent that you take away educational opportunities, now I know that that very few, not a lot of people are. Some people are really buying it now in a post George Floyd era. I don't know how long that's going to last, but the the possibilities for this kind of work are far reaching indeed. So if we have to kind of go down what Derek Bell used to call an interest convergence road, which I don't like, but I sometimes have to say it, you know, the students who have a better sense. Of race and racism, and they are better equipped to navigate a multicultural society. Um, I mean, it's not a coincidence that Fortune 500 companies are constantly looking for people who can speak to more diverse audiences. Mm. Um, you know, who can open up different, you know, uh, uh, different marketplaces for them. You know, and, and I, like I said, I, it feels kind of icky saying, hey, take out mixed because you'll be a better investment banker or something like that, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> but, you know. But, you know, for some people, that's the that's the, rash, the only rationale that they care about. And being in Arizona, I've had to become very fluent in a lot of different arguments, um, you know, because it's one of those things that, uh, you know, th- think about how much companies invest in, you know, there's one-off diversity trainings because someone pulled, like, a Michael mm-hmm. Scott from the office and said so it was a racially inappropriate joke, you know. Um, mm-hmm. It's a lot cheaper to just say, yeah, I take these classes, have cultural competency coming into my job, and that would be a core component, not not a cute little add-on, but a core component of what you do. Um, and then also, there's, I mean, there's some more abstract things about the, you know, s- students actually By by taking up studies courses, students learn more. Like that's just, I mean, like their their cognitive complexity increases. They're able to, you know, and and all. I mean, that's isn't that kind of what we should be offering in uh, undergraduate liberal arts education?
0: And and it sounds like a great way to avoid these crisis moments that you hinted at. In that, Mm -hmm. you know, all these issues about different cultures come to a head when there's bad things that happen. Well, if we are well-versed in this, maybe we avoid those pitfalls. The other thing that's more sinister that you touch on, and, um, of course, our listeners are already aware of this, is this anti-intellectual movement. And, okay, we're talking about ethnic studies now, but, okay, when I was in college – I would have never taken rhetorical <laughs> rhetorical analysis. I would not have gone to college. And say, oh man, I got to take that right. I mean, I was forced to take it. I am so glad I took it because I've been applying that and thinking about it all the way down the line. This seems that this is part of the fallout for this attack on
1: intellectualism.
0: Is that fair to say?
1: Uh, well, uh, not entirely. I think that i think that there are undercurrents of that in the on any attacks on higher education there is definitely an anti-intellectualism um that's really i mean it was it was pervasive uh throughout the country but under the trump administration really 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 took off um but let's remember how ethnic studies courses are framed that they're not seen as academically rigorous they're not seen as they're, they're seen more as as ideology and identity than an actual rigorous area of academic study. And so I definitely agree that, uh, in, as a whole, we're dealing with a massive anti-intellectualism um, uh, backlash, um, you know, climate science, vaccination, all these different things, you because, know, you know, everybody who has the University of Google at their fingertips is now a certified MD and a you know, climate <laughs> scientist. Um, uh, and so with all of that, I think that uh, the ethnic state's backlash probably has a little less to do with anti-intellectualism and more just to do with whiteness, and more just to do with mm. like I, I don't like, you know, I I feel as a white person that we're losing all cultural hegemony, and we, this is a it's it's like I said it's that backlash, it's the you know the the this, the, the audacity of 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 coming forth and, and wanting to go back to the comfort of colorblindness or, or what some of my friends refer to as the caucasity of that. I,
0: I think that's a great point in that it's a separate lane in that this seems to be a knee-jerk reaction right now about my, mm-hmm. and not me, but folks that mm-hmm. are uh, offended, <laughs> offended by this. It's, yeah. it's, it is a different nature. And important to distinguish because it sounds bad. Like I mean, to me, it it sounds like the vestiges of the anti-Mex market studies movement era and we
1: don't need that again. Of course. And 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 it's also one of these things, and we have to remember this, that um ethnic studies is a different area of scholarly inquiry and community engagement mm-hmm. than any other one. Because uh, let's be real, like most ethnic studies programs have come as a result, or at least in some direct link to, you know, community protests, social agitation, community organizing. Um, you know, like when was the last time that a physics department had a lab because <laughs> someone had like a, like a, hung, you know, here's my hunger strike for, for optical <laughs> sciences. Like, like that's, it, it's absurd, you know, and even in the more, you know, uh, even with you know areas like history or political science or sociology or even rhetoric that are more seen as kind of more liberal bastions, they don't have that community agitation that led to the creation of the discipline. And, and this isn't like ancient history. You know, we had, like you said, we've we've had massive demonstrations in in Tucson for Mexican American studies. Um, you know, I mean, for crying out loud, when I started undergrad in '98. They had just come off of a hunger strike for ethnic studies. Mm. UCLA had a a hunger strike for ethnic studies in the 90s. I mean, this is not ancient history. These are very pragmatic realities that have uh, been going uh, about and and are very consistent across the history of of ethnic studies as a discipline.
0: So I tell you, in closing, thank you so much for catching us up. Thank you so much for continuing to advocate. How can we help?
1: Okay. Well, as as immortal technique says, not everyone can do everything, but everyone can do something. So, uh, the, the, I think that the big thing is to to kind of know your place um, within the, the the larger movement, um, because there are some folks that are amazing speakers, they're amazing reporters, they're amazing artists, they're amazing writers, they're amazing. You know, but the the biggest thing, the most the, the most important thing is number one, continuing to say. Um, that ethnic studies is real education Mm. And, and more importantly that ethnic studies is not some cute little boutique area off on the side like this is the core of what we need to be doing if we're really trying to support democratic education, like this is, this is really gets to the nuts and bolts of what do American institutions do? What does it mean to, to be a democracy a, a racialized democracy um, and, and, you know, advocate for it whenever possible, but also educate yourself and be able to set the record straight because there is a massive amount of misinformation out there um, on just a host of subjects I'm not. I don't buy into the notion of post truth. I think that that truth matters very, very deeply, and folks feel uncomfortable about ethnic studies. And in many respects, that's actually kind of the point. Like we, you know, we want to be unsettled. We don't want to be complacent. And and so because of that, um, you know, a lot of folks are like, you know, when something feels different, it feels off. And that was in a lot of the psychology that a lot of people in Arizona were feeling around Mexican American studies. It's different. Oh, it must be subs- uh, uh, like, it's subversive. It must be, um, you know, anti-American. It must be something else instead of just saying, look, it's just different. And more importantly, what we've been doing in the past has not been working. Like, you know, it's that, that old phrase about the definition of insanity being the, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. You know, we do need to shake things up. We do need to have these things. And so a lot of that is is A, being willing to fight and B, being willing to uh, set the record straight. And if you can really push for policies, the more that we can implement these policies, the better that will be because then we can start defining it for the masses what exactly meaningful ethnic studies is.
0: Powerful. Well, it's been a pleasure catching up with Nuestro Hermano <laughs> Nolan, Dr. Nolan Cabrera from the University of Arizona. Continued success and please call us back with more updates.
1: Uh, hey, I appreciate it, Hermano. Thank you very much for holding it down in your neck of the woods. And Once COVID gets over, hope to be able to actually see you in person again sometime, all right?
0: Can't wait.
1: Gracias. Sure. Unidos. <laughs> <laughs> take care of yourself. Family Houston is a nonprofit organization that provides mental health counseling for children in the greater Houston area. Family Houston's counseling program helps children manage negative feelings before they interfere with school or lead to risky behaviors. Appointments can can be made in English or Spanish by calling 713-861-4849. For more information, email media at familyhouston.org or visit us online at familyhouston.org.
2: KPFT Houston. One world home for everyone. One dream, one song. One song heard by everyone. Magazines, newspapers, cable television, the internet, all sources of news and information, and all cost money. KPFT costs money too, but unlike those other news sources, you get to decide whether you want to help pay for it and how much to contribute. It's unusual in the age of big corporate media to have a quality source of news and information that's paid for voluntarily. But that's one more way KPFT gives you more than you might expect.